This is a Media Lab podcast. What 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 do you think about this here, Dave? Uh, I I don't know. Is that skin? I, what are we looking at? I'm tr- I'm trying to show you my chest hair. Oh, okay. Wow. There. What do you think? Is it enough? Too much? Not enough? I don't know. No, you know. I'm trying to up my online dating game here, and I'm thinking uh, through no, you know, uh, uh, serendipity of what we're going to be talking about here today. I, I'm thinking that this might seduce someone, or I mean, my hope is everyone. But I don't know. What is what does this do for you? It's going to work uh, really, really well for you. I think that it will work well. Why can't you look at me in the <laughs> eyes? In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This This is is Kyle and Dave Dave versus versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. I am Dave. And I'm The Machine. A podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, we're going to be watching the film, The World Is Not Enough. As the countdown begins to the 21st century, it's good to know... There is still one number you can always count on. Bond. Bond. Can't you just say hello like a normal person? Renard is behind this. He will die along with everyone in the city. We do not negotiate with terrorists. His only goal is chaos. I sent 009 to kill Renard. He put a bullet in his head. That bullet's still there. He feels no pain. He can push himself harder, longer than any normal man. No hard feelings, Mr. Bond. It appears that... Okay, uh, Dave, I'm really excited to understand what you think about this film. And, uh, oh, look, our, oh, sorry, door. someone's knocking at our guest oh, door, door here. Again. Let me just open this up. Kyle Turner, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I just appreciate that people just walk through um, these flying doors that appear in their lives and have no qualms just walking into really uh, a surprise each and every time. Yeah, I mean, back in Connecticut, no one locks their door, so you can just literally open it up. Oh, apparently Canada is just a big Connecticut, Dave. Well, That's fun to know. I did uh, leave Toronto for that reason. I missed that. Mm. Although I don't think Can- uh, Calgary keeps their doors open anymore. It's too cold. I think, Kyle, what needs to happen before we jump into talking about anything is maybe you can describe a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do. My name is Kyle Turner, and I am a freelance uh, film critic and writer, primarily of of film and culture. And uh, I have a special interest in the James Bond franchise and queer cinema and sort of the intersections of gender and cinema and representation and whatnot. I mean, that's a good jumping off point here. I, I want us all to answer this, but I guess what is your relationship with just the Bond franchise uh, kind of in general? Like, why did you come to this? Why is this a fascination of yours? That's a that's a good question. I initially was introduced 
to the Bond franchise by my babysitters when I was six or seven. And they had me play GoldenEye N64. And mm -hmm. then they showed me, I, I think, Goldfinger. And I begged my mother uh, at Walmart to buy me Dr. No on DVD. And the rest was history. And so I continued watching them when they were on TV. Um, and I saw Casino Royale, which was my first Bond mm -hmm. film in theaters when I was 12, I think. And then as I've continued to to grow and, and become more aware of its history and its cultural implications, um, I've become really fascinated with James Bond as like a really rich text to explore geopolitics, to explore representations of gender and masculinity, to explore the way in which the Bond franchise is reactionary, not only in terms of sociocultural or sociopolitical movements but also in cinematic movements because like you wouldn't have moonraker if you didn't have star wars and you wouldn't have mm. Living that die if you didn't have like the entire black exploitation um cinema so i i think in spite of its regressive politics i think even in its re regression i think they end up being really really fascinating texts that have morphed its own ideas in respect to the culture at large I know that there is sometimes a criticism of the Bond films. I don't know if you have an, a, a perspective on this of how they very rarely are like pushing film or the genre forward. They're kind of always responding to what's going on in the culture. I don't know if that's necessarily something that you agree with. I don't know if I agree with that because the initial creation of James Bond was very much born of a, of a particular idea of like Western white heteromasculinity and its containment within a certain genre and then its expansion into film has always necessarily been reactionary and i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that um and i think i i would argue that if they're not necessarily pushing the genre as far as it can go formally i think it is interrogating some really interesting things in terms of genre mythology and masculinity like hmm. my theory is that the daniel craig cycle specifically is indicative of this post 9 11 construction of masculinity that is fundamentally broken and that it hmm. is responding to a lot of post 9 11 cinema including but not limited to the born series but also like in the valley of ella yeah, definitely. You can definitely see the change that happened to the James Bond franchise post 9-11, I mm. think. Um, and in many ways, I think you can, not that we've seen the movie yet, but you can see in The World Is Not Enough how uh, it is a very pre-9-11 movie yeah, in many, many absolutely. ways. I think they would actually make really good make a really good double feature in that way. Sure. Dave, why don't you talk about your history with the Bond franchise? Okay. Uh, I, I watched them. Um, mm -hmm. they are. What was your first? Do you remember your first oh, James wow, Bond that's movie? Pretty personal, Christ. Do you have a couch for me to sit on? Do I take notes? Fucking psychology. No, no. Um, I don't remember. On TV, it was probably a Roger Moore one because I think mm -hmm. in the '80s, that's what was on TV. So, if I had to throw out a name, it might be Moonraker or something like that. I think what's Timothy Dalton? Uh, late '80s, early '90s. Yeah, so Living Daylights came out, and I might have been... What's Living Daylights? 1988? 85. 85? Oh, shit. No, I'm still... Oh, no, 87, because License to Kill was 89. 89. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, no, that definitely wouldn't have been a theater movie. I was still 10-something. So, probably Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton. 
I remember not liking Timothy Dalton. Um, mm. I remember being part of, as a kid, this media questioning why Pierce Brosnan didn't get the role earlier. Um, right, right. But, you know, I didn't really understand what that meant because I was still pretty young. Uh, and I think I got back to the Sean Connery uh, originals uh, later, probably in my teens. Yeah. Would you have then watched the Pierce Brosnan ones in theaters? Yes. Like, was that a... Okay. Yeah, Goldeneye was So he was, was kind of my... your first, like, cinema, like, going to the movies bond. Yeah, Goldeneye was my first in the theater bond. And, uh, and yeah, and that whole cultural phenomena that came out of that one movie was part mm, of my true. childhood. Yeah, I mean, Kyle brought up uh, the video game. That's uh, a fundamentally powerful <laughs> experience for people of my era. And it's weird it's, in it's retrospect. Still, it's still literally referenced today. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I can't believe like the staying power of that one video game. I feel like it's kind of like a couple of those classics. I'm pretty sure I read that there are still tournaments and stuff. I mean, there's no way that game holds up in any way, shape, or form. Oh, no. But, uh, the graphics are awful. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a polygon. No, it's not Doom, but and then, you know, Daniel Craig's my man. My uh, yeah. Casino Royale was uh, amazing. Skyfall's amazing. Everything, I don't know. I watched uh, Quantum of Solace. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. It, what was the one after that? Is it Skyfall after? No. Yeah. Uh, Spectre was the last yeah, one. Spectre's yeah. terrible. I, um, Wrong. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, wow. We're going to get into a fight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I will tell you this, though. I know a lot of people get down on Quantum of Solace, which I think as a film might not work. But if you watch it like really yes. close to Casino Royale, it yeah. kind of does work, I was work, just going to say, opinion. yeah, we did a marathon and it was much better yeah. uh, in a row. But waiting mm -hmm. three yeah. years and then watching it on its own, it was uh, right. disjointed. <laughs> it was kind of hard to digest. So, James Bond, for me, it's a weird history because unlike you, Dave, I was, I guess, not seeing these late, late night James Bond movies. I knew of the character. The first time I saw James Bond is because on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I would have been 12 or 13 at the time. They did this summer series. They showed the very first six Sean Connery films uh, in, on successive Saturdays nice. for six weeks. So I basically watched all of them. Um, I think except for... Thunderball? I think that was the one I missed. Anyways, I watched all the other ones. So that was my first introduction to James Bond, was watching Sean Connery, so the original, and I loved it. Like, I just, I, but for whatever reason, it just, like, switched, uh, flipped this switch in my brain. It was like, this is cool, and, like, he's being cool, and that's pretty misogynistic, but, you know, it's still kind of fun because <laughs> I am watching this. Then the next time I saw James Bond was the last Pierce Brosnan film, which was uh, Die Another Day. Is that, is mm -hmm. that correct? Die the Another Day. Madonna's song. Yeah. The Madonna mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Um, so I saw that in university with friends. And that was the very first James Bond movie I saw in theaters. I also do. So then, so those, that was like my concept of what James Bond was. And then, of course, Daniel Craig came, kind of revolutionized it. And then a couple of years after that, after Casino Royale, I do these challenges for myself every so often. And it's like, okay. I'm going to watch every Godzilla film ever made and then I do it or it's like whatever. Right now I'm trying to persevere and watch the the last four of the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th movies. Most of them are awful. So I make these little challenges for myself. And one of them was I'm going to watch every James Bond film. So I watched every James Bond film and that's where I got kind of this appreciation for it. 
It was nice revisiting things and, and seeing these ones. This is why I have the very unpopular opinion of like my by my list of favorite Bonds because I no one ever agrees with me because I don't think Timothy Dalton is bad. And no, so he's great. Sue me. But, he's great. Yeah, and everyone says that he's the worst. I'm like, I disagree very strongly that he's the worst Bond. He's so. a proto Daniel Craig. He is. Uh, thank you. I, I, I say this all the time. It's like, he's Daniel Craig before Daniel Craig. I, they weren't um, ready for him. I'm beginning to understand why there are two Kyles on this episode. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe there's, that's true. There's quite a lot of, uh, yeah. All right, keep going. And keep so, going. And, and so that, that, that's basically my history of Bond. I love this franchise. I uh, connect deeply with a lot of the films. But I, and I do love the Daniel Craig stuff. I, I really do. I think it's a very different type of Bond than what came before it. But I also think that it kind of needed to change to update itself. Um, and I think this is part of the reason uh, while pe- people are kind of like in the middle with Pierce Brosnan a lot of the time is because they were trying to figure it out. Like this is a, a franchise at that point that had been 30 something years and people were starting to see like the cracks, whether it was, we talked about this in our Austin Powers episode, right? Where it's like, people were starting to see like, oh uh, like, yeah, like this doesn't really hold up anymore. And, and unfortunately I think Pierce Brosnan got, I don't know, drew the short stick because I will say this, I do not think, and I'll now throw it over to you both to, to, to debate this, but I actually don't think Pierce Brosnan is a bad Bond. I just think he has a lot of bad films that he was in. He's let down by the material that was mm-hmm, given to him. Mm-hmm. But I think he himself is actually pretty good. Um, so it's unfortunate because uh, I also love GoldenEye, but, I, but I'm not like the biggest fan of the next three that he did for varying levels and reasons and stuff. Uh, how about you, Kyle, about just Pierce Brosnan in general? How do you feel like his tenure as James Bond was? That makes sense. I, I think I agree with your assessment that he is a fine bond that's let down by the material. But I also don't think the material is necessarily that bad. I think maybe he's mm. just the wrong bond for what they were trying to do. Because his tenure is very much a tenure of a James Bond in transition because he's stuck between the fall of the Soviet Union, fall of the Berlin Wall, and the end of the Cold War. And... 9-11. Not to say that there weren't things happening geopolitically um, or, or socially, socially or culturally in between that time, but I think the, the filmmakers were trying to figure out like what exa- how exactly could Bond respond to what was going on when what was going on was not necessarily as like headline grabbing or not necessarily, did not necessarily serve as good of a, a base or structure in which to build uh, films off of. With that being said, I think what what will end up being be interesting about this conversation is that I I think there is a lot of richness and there's a lot of potential richness for this material. And I think GoldenEye is like one of the best films of the 90s of all Mm -hmm. time because you have this figure who is called out by M as a sexist misogynist dinosaur and a relic of the Cold War. He is very much embedded in a very specific time frame and like social and political context. And now he feels almost displaced. And that displacement forces him to confront the these like political ghosts. How about how about you, Dave? Like what is your opinion of Pierce Brosnan's tenure as Bond? Just listening to you, Kyle Turner, I, I don't know if I understand it the way you do. I mean, number one, when these movies are being made, there is no 9-11. So um, right, yeah, they're I swimming know. in this little bit of a weird world where, as you brought up, you know, GoldenEye was kind of a ca- Casino Royale. It was a reboot. They shook things up and then they immediately went back to make three shit movies. They sh- like literally shit the bed. I, I can't 
I couldn't comprehend what growing up and what going to the theaters like this one in particular and the one after I did not go to the theater to watch after Michelle they wasted Michelle Yeoh and uh, with is it Jonathan Price it's a fucking terrible movie which, which right. was it, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's that's die another one, day yeah. no uh, tomorrow never dies tomorrow never dies. Every, everybody's dying somewhere but anyways tomorrow <laughs> never dies and I was profoundly disappointed with that I mean Michelle Yeoh's star was starting to rise and I, I got excited about that and uh, that was awful and then this one uh, as Kyle and I have discussed I am not a Denise Richards fan uh, I will say that Drop Dead Gorgeous was a surprising role for me because she was actually uh, her- herself in it but uh you know, uh, so it wasn't a draw. I didn't really want to see it. I liked Robert Carlyle, but I think I watched this on video, I'm pretty sure. I think I went to see the theater for the Madonna one, but the song's terrible. So uh, I didn't understand <laughs> the context. Wait, are you of, saying the garbage song is terrible? No, I was talking about uh, Madonna's song. For, oh, okay, yeah. okay. The garbage song's pretty good, <laughs> except, so I was telling Kyle, I'm such a 90s person because I knew it was garbage as soon as she started singing, but it's not garbage because it's written by... Uh, some Bond music score person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's got that 60s, right? Kitschy kind of tone in it with the orchestra, or, uh, orchestral music in the background. And if you liked garbage, uh, uh, it's kind of a sellout because they didn't give a fuck about any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, uh, they, she was singing about killing herself half the time. So right. it's, it was an interesting thing. I don't, to, 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 I, I don't know, not to gang up on you, Dave. To Kyle's point, though, I think that there is something to be said about how Bond did change fundamentally when the Berlin Wall fell down because there wasn't like a distinct like enemy anymore. Right, I exactly. think that that's the weirdness of the 90s of being like, well, who's our enemy now? Like the 80s exactly. had such as great, like every Russian was your enemy. And like for the last 15, 20 years, it's been like every Middle Eastern person is your enemy just because mm-hmm. that's who we're at war with. And the 90s was this one time was like, uh, we don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess our enemy is America because that's how, when you started to see everyone being like upset by and like, you know, grunge culture and that whole thing. So I, th- I think there's something to that. Well, I mean, Daniel Craig's movies turned away from that after Casino Royale, number one. I mean, they, they weren't interested in pushing the sort of Islamic terrorist motif mm. very strongly. I mean, the second one is about water. The third one's uh, the third one's about Javier Bardem. Eco-terrorism, and we're yeah. not even sure what he is. He's sort of like a <laughs> Latin he's fr- British he's the agent Joker. who well, lives in Hong Kong. Like it's uh, he's not meant to represent specific threat in the same way that uh, the Cold War kind of framed things. And uh, Inspector, fuck, I don't know. I think what that shows you is that as James Bond gets further away in proximity from the Cold War, James Bond's own obsolescence becomes the focus and like James Bond himself would or sort of the specter as it were of British imperialism and of like cyber terrorism um and uh these like broader cultural uh, broader like governmental and in, and political institutions they become the enemy and I think that's even hinted at in the world is not enough yeah, let's let, let's do this uh, just so that we don't go like uh, thirty minutes in our introduction. Uh, we're, let let me go thank some sponsors, and then when we return, we'll be talking more about the world is not enough. Hey everyone, Kyle here again, uh, letting you know about some of the fantastic sponsors that help make this show possible. I'm recording this at two thirty in the morning. Why you might ask? Mind your own business. But part of it might be that I went and saw Tenet the first movie I have seen in a movie theater since April. No, March. But don't let the machine know because I'm only supposed to be watching the films that they tell me to watch. And I know it's been sending out Facebook invites, so don't be a snitch. 
Anyways, I guess I should tell you that Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This episode is also brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing for local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. Park Power has low overhead, and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much money you could save by visiting parkpower.ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. If you decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Kyle, I know we just sat and watched this movie. I should have asked you if you even had time to sit and watch this movie with us, but uh, I mean, you just did waste two hours <laughs> sitting it's here watching. Quarantine. I guess so. What else are we supposed to do? Kyle, what are your just quick brief thoughts about The World is Not Enough? It is much, every time I watch it, it gets better and better, honestly. And um, I think it's one of the Stranger Bond films where I think the plot is better than the set pieces. I forgot how much I actually dislike the final set piece because it's just it's filmed weird mm-hmm. um we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the director because i have no idea why they picked this director but anyways i'll <laughs> i'll get into that in, in a moment um dave how about yourself just quick tweet level of uh, a reaction to sure this. i'll go hashtag trash hashtag give me my time back hashtag where did two hours of my life go how about mm-hmm. hashtag what a piece of shit we'll go there uh yeah it's okay. fucking terrible I feel like I'm going to be like in the middle of both of you because there is a lot of stuff in this movie that I think just does simply just doesn't work. Once again, though, and I think this is actually a recurring thing for Pierce Brosnan specifically. I love the introduction to this movie. I think it's phenomenal. I love the the just basically the first 20 minutes of this movie, I think, works supremely well. And then it kind of tries to find itself by the end of it. But I, I actually kind of enjoy I guess who you finally find out who the real villain is by the end of it. I love that little subterfuge that happens throughout the movie. Okay. Anyways, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. It's a trope. <laughs> I mean, it's a very Bondy trope for sure. Uh, would actually, actually would come back for Skyfall again, say, actually, in, Skyfall in a weird way. But, a rewrite of this, but good. Yeah. But good. Well, ugh, same, ugh. same writers. Who also wrote Johnny English. All right. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Keep going. Keep going. You're, you're, I, I apologize. You're stepping on me. Yeah. yeah. Let's see some quick background information. So, The World is Not Enough was released on November 19th, 1999. The only other major release that w- that came out that week was Sleepy Hollow, written by Andrew Calvin Walker, directed by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp, Christina Ricci, and Miranda Richardson. That's all we need to talk about on that movie. So, currently, this movie is rated 6.4 on IMDb, 57 on Metacritic, 
And over on Rotten Tomatoes, based on 142 critics, it's at 53%. And the users, 210,322 of them, have it at 49%. So this is considered a rotten movie uh, per that aggregator, at least. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it on Google Play or YouTube. And because we live in Canada, it is not available to stream anywhere, unfortunately. It's great that we may have paid for this. Its budget was $135 million. It opened to $35 million in North America. Domestically, it would make $126. Internationally, $234, which brings it up to $361 million. To, uh, with inflation, that's 559 It was the eighth highest grossing film in the world in 1999. So a lot of people went and saw this movie. Its plot description is James Bond uncovers a nuclear plot while protecting an oil heiress from her former kidnapper, an international terrorist who can't feel pain. Uh, and as we kind of already mentioned, here's who it stars. Pierce Brosnan as James Bond, Robert Carlyle as Renard, Sophie Marceau as Electra King, Judy Dench as M, and Denise Richards as Dr. Christmas Jones. Denise Richards is my favorite actress. Anything that you want to bring up about those actors at all? Either of you, I guess? Pierce is actually, I like Pierce as an actor. And like you mm -hmm. guys brought up at the beginning, um, I don't think it's his acting that lets this Bond franchise down. Um, he He's a, a decent Bond. It's just too bad. Uh, I just wasted two hours of my life watching this piece of shit that he was in. No, that's just, that's biased. Uh, Judy Dench is amazing. Apparently everything she touches uh, blooms. So um, I also feel well, sorry let, that let, she let, was in this sorry. movie. Everything that she does is good. Um, I've seen movies that she is awful. Like the movie itself is oh, yeah, awful. Yeah, but. I've, yeah. And, but she does so many. That's going to have to happen. Yeah. Right. But she's fun. And I also feel bad that she was in this movie. Um, luckily, she got to redeem this shitty storyline in uh, the aforementioned Skyfall. Now I'm just being bitter. Yeah. And then what was and the wrong. other one? Uh, <laughs> Denise Richards. We know how I feel about Denise Richards. I think, can we just get it out of the way? I just want to get this out of the way. I love the fact that she's called Dr. Christmas Jones just for this joke at the end. I, I just, I, I think, why not? Awful. Why not just have her call Dr. Christmas Jones? Well, this is the thing that upsets me the most in terms of uh, being archaic. You know, this is a movie written by a man who lived in the 60s. You have uh, a woman that's dressed up like 90s Lara Croft, who's supposed to be a nuclear physicist, physicist genius who's, you know, like dismantling nuclear warheads in the middle of a fucking desert. It's so dumb. It just, I, uh, I almost turned off the movie at that point because uh, I was waiting. I was trying to be which patient. Would have been, which would have been difficult when we were all watching it together. No, so It's yeah. not the first time I've done that. Uh, and then Robert Carla we spoke about uh, when we did Ravenous. So uh, I actually like him. I think he's insane. But uh, we had trouble kind of coming up with movies that, we liked him in other than train spot. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, Robert Carlyle is just, I think is a presence. He's one of those actors who shows up and I'm like, Oh, it's Robert Carlyle. And then Sophie Marceau just quickly is your classic European actress, started modeling, got into acting, did some theater, released the CD, directed. I think like Europe and Asia has got this thing where everybody's kind of, to be a celebrity, it's you got like, to touch uh, everything, right? Franca, Frank, oh my Franca gosh, uh, from Run the La Run. Franca Potente, well, yeah. I was, gonna, I was <laughs> thinking like, more like Hong Kong cinema music. where, uh, Every single one of those, uh, like hot guys from that era, like Andy Lau and all, like from the eighties, they're like all mega million CD selling. <laughs> like it's just weird to think. Didn't about Jackie those Chan things. release an album? Of course, at you some have point. to. Yeah, yeah isn't he? Isn't he like classically trained in the Peking Opera? Probably. He, well, I think yeah, I, he must come from that era because he wasn't originally. What was he was in originally an acrobat uh, school for theater, right? Um, mm -hmm. Before he got super super ripped and could. 
bend his body any way he want, in any position he wanted. Uh, yeah. This podcast is turning X-rated. Speaking of quickly of Pierce Brosnan, Jackie Chan, The Foreigner is an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, it's on Canadian Netflix. I don't know about the US, but if you want to see Jackie Chan as an old man, uh, John wicking people and not being funny uh, and beating the okay. shit out of Pierce Brosnan, you should watch that movie. It's, uh, right. it's a good one. Yeah. You had me at beat up Pierce Brosnan. I just want to talk about the writing team here. So the story is by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Bruce Firestein, of course, based on the characters of Ian Fleming. Uh, this has basically been the writing team for since this movie. Uh, so they were actually writing on some of them wrote for GoldenEye or one of them wrote for GoldenEye, I think. I see. Um, but but uh, but uh, yeah, from this movie onward, they have written every single Bond film for the good and the bad. Whether you like the movie or didn't like the Bond movie from the last little bit, it's because of these guys. Uh, they've also written a bunch of the video games, too. So if you like any of the James Bond video games. Uh, it's these people as well. It's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? That uh, you can have the same pair writing and have such strange tonal differences. It's hard to understand. Or maybe it's the 9-11 thing and everybody just got more dour, so it became easier maybe. to write trage tragedy instead of this uh, you know, campy stuff. But they did write Johnny I mean, it, English, so I, 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 I don't know. I was going to say, I, and they wrote Johnny English. It's it's a weird, a of, anyways. It's super weird. I mean, it's it's not writing, but it's kind of like my reaction to um, George Miller, the director George Miller, who's like does all the Mad Max films, and also Babe, Pig in the City. He did. It's babe? like I, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, no, he did Babe, Pig, Pig in the oh, City, right. Part Two. And he, <laughs> he, did he was sequel. a producer uh, on Babe, yeah. and he was one of the writers on the original film. Actually. Yeah. But it's like, so it's like, how does that work? Anyways, it's it's interesting to see people's careers. Um, I want to talk more about Michael Apted, who mm. directed this movie, because, well, Kyle, do you know who Michael Apted is? I'm assuming you do. Yeah, he's, the, he's usually a documentary filmmaker is the thing. Yeah, he is. He's a British documentary. The biggest thing that you may have uh, seen from him is the 7-Up series. The guy who's been making every seven years following the same people. I think they're up to... 56 mm -hmm. years old yeah. i think it was the last one 56 mm -hmm. up was the last one that came out a few years ago so literally over like since the 60s actually since james bond <laughs> since the 60s he's been making these documentary films following the same people uh the other two fiction films that people might know are coal miner's daughter and gorillas in the mist he directed those two as well unless you're a big ray donovan fan because he's directed two episodes <laughs> of ray donovan so the ray donaheads out there i guess are really excited about that factoid if you say one bad thing about Ray Donovan, I'll lend you. This is my thing. I'm going to make a very bold statement here, and I'm going to make enemies. I don't think he was the best person to direct this film for, for many reasons. For, for that, I, I don't think uh, he was up to the challenge necessarily of directing the action sequences in much the same way as I get up on my high horse when Kenneth Branagh is asked to direct action sequences because I don't think he can do it. Mm -hmm. He's great at Shakespeare, but man, trying directing an action film is like, please don't anymore because you don't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my opinion. His uh, remake of Murder on the Orient Express was also tedious. I liked it. It's very old-fashioned and, and well, the, uh, or the original is way, way better. It still holds up. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think it's made with a sort of cozy demeanor that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, I will say this: Artemis Fowl is certainly not good. <laughs> so oh yeah, I heard so that's awful. So, so don't watch that movie. Why is that directed by Kenneth Branagh? It sure is. Good. Yeah. Didn't that Good. get dumped on Disney Plus? Yes. It got dumped on Disney Plus and I wasted an hour and a half of my time <gasps> watching it. Yes. 
Um, I watch it only so that you'll have visual nightmares of Josh Gad unhinging his jaw. What the fuck? Yeah. Why are you kink shaming me? It's in the kids' film and it's a nightmare inducing. Anyways, this, we're, this is not about Artemis Fowl. We're not going to talk about Isn't that. Isn't Judy Dench in that movie? She is, okay. yes. <laughs> and talks like Christian Bale Batman. Good. So, I mean, That's what you want. Yeah. A, it, it is a choice, of, definitely, of a movie. Uh, okay, so that is some background of what's going on in this movie. And, you know, usually we end by asking this question, but I actually want to start by asking this question. Kyle, how culturally relevant do you think this film still is? I think it's very culturally ve- relevant, actually. I-, I can't trace the origins, and maybe this is just speaking retrospectively as my own, like, personal politics continue to develop and change and evolve and whatnot. But it it is a film, basically, where... I- I- for me, at least, at the end, I was like, oh, the villain was right. It's like, she had some things to say. She had some points. Sure. I think in spite of its sort of messy relationship to the Cold War, I, I think the aftermath of the Cold War and the aftermath of 9-11, actually, which is why I think it would make a good double feature with Casino Royale, I think it ends up making it a very relevant film. Um, how about you, Dave? I can't see that at all. No, and maybe I got mired in just its trappings, but I just, I couldn't un- even understand the idea of uh, stealing decommissioned nuclear warheads and trying to blow up Istanbul to make a statement about a woman's uh, hereditary right to own an oil field. And like, I, the whole thing uh, was a mess. I do like the idea that we had a villainess for the first time in a long time, you know, so just as a concept. Um, I thought Sophie Morceau was great in it, playing sort of both sides uh, in 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 a 1990s way. Uh, it's been done in a much more creepy way, you know, recently by a lot of actors. But I just I can't. Everything about this movie is a joke to me. I, I the fact that you have like James Bond is the only person that can aim a gun. The fact that you have uh, these weird helicopters that chop wood that are flown into a dock for just the purpose of chopping up a car. Like there's nothing about this movie that ages well. Um, I but I, I don't know. Disappointing... Isn't that isn't that James Bond though? The ridiculousness mm. of it to a certain degree is like isn't that apologetic though? I mean, I I get it. I guess, but I but I mean, I mean, we 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 start off this franchise well early in the franchise at least about a guy who like you know covers people in gold to asphyxiate them. Sure. I mean, these are not like your normal run of the mill villains. And I my personal feeling is James Bond is always. I shouldn't say that always the best. James Bond is mostly or very often the best when James Bond is like your center and then the villain is wackadoo. I, I love it when it, they're just like wild and crazy. What the, <laughs> that's, that's my favorite. But isn't that kind of what we're talking about? I mean, if this had been more of a cartoon and it's not trying to take itself nearly as seriously as it tried to do, um, you know, you can get this escapist world of a film where I could just unplug, not think about any kind of relevance to my life, the geopolitical thing, like social dynamics. And I could just lay down with my mouth gaping open, drooling into my popcorn and just be, you know, entertained. But this movie, like all of the, actually, I mean, we've complained about post 9-11 cinema in general. People aren't, don't seem to be allowed to do that. And this movie doesn't have the sort of excuse of having gone through such a massive, massive uh, world event in its uh, direct uh, writing time mm-hmm. it, i don't think it can find a tone it it's uh cartoonish but it's also trying to be too serious it's uh i don't disagree that that this ends up being more emblematic of pierce brosnan's 
cycle more generally, with, maybe with the exception of Goldeneye, and this like desire to find the correct tone. Because I think the Bond franchise overall has always sort of straddled this line between cartoonish superhero escapism and real world politics and trying to marry the two. And then I think what Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Isn't Enough, and less so Dying of Day, uh, indicates is as action blockbusters more broadly were changing their form, that's prompted James, the James Bond franchise to do the same. But there was the confusion with these films in terms of being able to balance the tone of contemporary action cinema and its cartoonishness and its mining from real world politics. I think what fascinates me is that this seems like the first step in James Bond sort of engaging with like somewhat post or anti-colonial narratives in the sense that Electric King, and we're spoiling here, Electric King's desire to steal these nuclear warheads, to blow up Turkey, to, to assert her relationship with oil in Azerbaijan ends up being this, I think, suggestion with regards to the way in which oil is exploited and abused substance or resource that threatens that threatens the local people as well as continually funds sort of imperialist oil interests in the UK and around the world. I did think that was interesting of the idea that like you know people who control oil oil kind of control the money at least definitely mm-hmm. in that region but more broadly the world uh i i don't think that would have been necessarily like eye-opening during the time but i i think that is interesting that the james bond franchise of all things are like focusing on that and not going to like a moon base or like someone's trying to steal gold or whatever it's like no this is kind of uh put into the real world i, I do agree with you dave though very strongly that this movie has a hard time trying to figure out what tone it wants to settle on and but i think i'm coming at it at from an opposite end from you i think it actually does work the best when it tries to ground itself and mm-hmm. then tries to button it with a joke every single time it's like you, you don't need that right. in this scene like for instance the part that did work for me you know he's in the, like underwater like skidoo thing and like he fixes his tie it's like that's all you really need because you're telling story through action beats and i think that that works incredibly well when he has to do his like little one-liners i'm like you know, th- this is starting to feel tired. You don't have to button every scene with, with this. You can just fun. let it flow naturally. Um, and I think they did finally figure out how to do that with, again, we bring him up constantly, I guess, in this episode. But when Daniel Craig comes on, he's able to do that naturally through scenes and not have to be like, I'm telling a joke now and tell a joke. And then it just feels weird with the tone. I don't have the research uh, background on this, but do you think, Kyle, that there's something to be said about the writing of Bond movies being influenced by being part of culture instead of trying to be culture forming. So in other words, you know, if you're in the 60s, you're in the middle of the Cold War, I can't imagine people are trying to write stories for Bond that are going to change people's minds about their perspective of the Cold War. But I think in the 90s, like you kind of brought up, uh, without uh, a monolithic sort of enemy, um, now the writers are tasked with inventing real-world bad guys. And they're, I mean, they're still pulling by their influence, but we kind of live in this culture too where uh, it's just before the dawn of social media, but there's something about 
kind of blame culture, right? I mean, mm. uh, the 80s were definitely, and the 90s were definitely seeing the uh, political influence of oil. Uh, and, you know, now it's going to be water. Uh, or, you know, in your country, in the States, uh, who knows, it's probably going to be on fire in another month. But um, uh. I think, uh, you know, looking at this movie and uh, and bringing up this idea of, uh, what was it, like five pipelines are owned by the Russians and this is mm -hmm. the one that's going to free, you know, Europe. Um, it's a little childish. So there's an attempt to kind of to contextualize it in something that these two writers are maybe worried about or read in a headline. Um but it doesn't have that much underneath it. We don't, like, it, like uh, if we're going to go the other way, you know, I need a movie to explain a little bit of it instead of the presumption that, you know, if M says it, then we need to be worried about it. it it's something that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't grip onto. Whereas when I watch old spy movies, uh, they often bring up like an East German or, a, you know, neo-Nazi something or the, the, you know, communist threat of the, you know, robotic Soviet uh, peoples, right? Mm. But like in a cartoonish sense, you know, they could all be one thing. It's just a non-human entity, and we're going to mm -hmm. push back against it. Now things are too. They, in this movie in particular, it's so muddled. I, I couldn't. I mean, Robert Carlyle was he supposed to be German or Russian? And he like I couldn't even understand him. Why, why was he in this movie? I, I don't. Mm. I don't understand why he had such a prominent. Like never mind the three D graphics, which are fucking ridiculous. But right. well. um, why is he in this movie? Well, he's the red herring of the movie, right? Yes, we're, but we're, they build, he's being built up to be the main villain, but he actually isn't. But, and that's the thing. They build this Bond villain into him. You know, bullets slowly kill him, can't feel pain, and then it's, it's a waste of time. I, I do think Renard is an unnecessary part of the film. If they focused more on Electric King, I think the film would be stronger. But I sort of understand why you needed a red herring as a sort of like someone to convert her. Because I, I think her ultimate goal is to force MI6 to confront its own sins in a way. Um, not only in the fact that like they abandoned her when she had been kidnapped, but I think the abandonment then served as a way for, as a jumping off point for, for her to understand like the broader context of how they function in the world as like super policemen, basically. And I, I understand your point in terms of like James Bond functioning better when there are real or more tangible villains to draw from as opposed to the invention of others, as it were. Um, even though this oil plot does have some sort of basis in reality uh, in terms of the oil that flows through Azerbaijan and whatnot and the way that it was being used by, um, by the British government. I understand that because there is like a lack of clarity there, and a lack of clarity in terms of being able to connect that in, a, like, in an, for an audience perspective, being able to connect that to something more tangible and or more concrete that that ends up sort of undermining the film's ambitions in terms of connecting James Bond to like broader postcolonialist narratives. To be just revisionist, if they had a scene near the beginning where someone complains about the cost of their gas as they're filling up their car, I mean, just mm -hmm. like one point. And then right. when it comes back, you're like, oh, well, it's because the Russians have five pipelines mm. and we really need this lady to give us the one. Mm. I, I'll, mm -hmm. Just quickly, too, my, the only point I almost got excited for this movie is when I convinced myself that Electric King had never had Stockholm Syndrome and was actually like this puppet master. And then they mm -hmm. fucking blew that up, too. And I was just like, I don't, I don't <laughs> care. I don't, I don't care. Well, talking about Carrie and like, uh, 
Kyle, what do you think works the best in this movie? Electra King. I think she's mm-hmm. an incredible villain. I think her motivations are really fascinating to me. I think her performance is really interesting. I figured out last night, because I rewatched it um, with y'all with as us. well as right. last night. Yes, right. The narrative. Um, cool, because cool. I like to... I like to do things multiple times. Uh, I'm a little bit of a masochist in that way. But I figured out the reason why she has that accent and why she is made up in the way that she is. Because she is exoticized in a manner that she looks vaguely East Asian. She looks like she could be Mm. like mixed race or Hapa or something. And that ends up being because of her like lineage her mother's lineage in Azerbaijan and Turkey and whatnot, um, which I thought was really interesting. And I like that her relationship to Renard ends up like fueling this really fascinating trauma narrative in terms of her relationship, her, not only her relationship to Renard, but also her relationship to like MI6 and M and, and this sort of like clash between the paternal and the maternal and her, mm-hmm. and her father as well. This uh, like the, the name, her, the character's name obviously invites like sort of Freudian electric complex readings. And I know, Dave, that you don't like most of this, but was there anything that worked for you at all? I think paragliding terrorists who drop bombs on each other. That was, that was very, no, uh, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'll agree on this. I, I thought Sophie Marceau was great in it. Um, I think that she took the shit material she was given and really filled that character with the nuance of being both yeah a victim and a villain i think that might be it i mean pierce brosnan's got he's like he's actually a pretty good actor so there are a couple of moments where he can show some of the range where he can go from cool and calculated to completely distraught but um it's placed in such in a junky way where it's so random. Like even the injury he sustains seems to only bother him at key plot points. But then otherwise he's flipping, doing backflips, wrestling guys to the ground. And then once it's important to the story, he'll go down in pain. Mm. That doesn't give an actor a lot of a lot of grounding to kind of build something into a movie. Uh, so he's kind of having to... I, I, yeah, I, I will say, sorry to cut you off, is I like that they introduced that and they used it. But I think that, again, it's one of those things that could have been used to more effect. To like really be hampering him in that final scene, like I cannot physically like <laughs> move my arm. So how do I figure this out? And how fascinating it is, I mean, not to overplay Skyfall, but that the same writing team took a Daniel Craig actor and kind of looked at this movie likely and said, "Here are the seventeen thousand things we fucked up on. Let's rebuild." Like you guys are talking about these core elements that actually make sense. We'll lose Electric King because it's such a joke, but we'll bring in Javier Bardem with a very similar sort of contextual thing right where he's upset at his mother for abandoning him even though he's a super, super spy and uh, daniel craig's i mean i read somewhere about this you know uh middle life crisis bond where he's falling apart it's it's just interesting when we discovered it's the same writing team um it goes to reinforce my belief that even the writers uh, don't like this movie uh, why why rehash it so directly uh, you don't need to but they brought the exact same story back um, including the shoulder injury and like being abandoned by like the whole thing plays. It's it's very weird. Well, if we ever talk about the year 2012 or whenever uh, Skyfall yeah. came out, <laughs> we'll talk about that movie Anyways, more. Okay. But- um, and then, I don't know. Uh, I, I actually disagree. I didn't like the beginning. I don't like the idea of having a gun that's oh. actually a bond, uh, bomb. I thought that was really corny. And having this beautiful woman with, what was her name? It was like on a top. And so I am... Um, 
Yeah, I just found myself shaking my head the whole way through. Well, I wrote down some notes while I was watching this, so maybe we can go through some of these things just to fill up the conversation a little bit more. I'm just shocked you can write. So this would have been Desmond Llewellyn's last time as Q, but fun not really a fun fact. I don't know why I phrase it that way. He did not pass away by old age. He died in a car accident. Did you know that? Fun fact. Yeah. Wow. So he was yeah. he was supposed <laughs> well, I was gonna say he was supposed to be in the next Bond film, but like passed away right before it started filming. So which is interesting because it really does feel like they're using John Cleese to take over for him eventually. And I am on record as saying I normally like John Cleese. I don't know if he really works in this movie that much, but he does not. That, yeah. I keep harping on this, and I I know someone's gonna eventually push back on me on this. This happened very much in like the later Roger Moore films where I felt like the age difference between him and the main woman actress is getting like way too big. I'm like, I don't think this is cool anymore. It's kind of the same thing here with Brosnan and Richards. Like he's 47, she's 28. So like almost 20 years difference. I mean, I don't know if it really is a huge deal, but it's like, I don't know. It just feels weird to me that James Bond always can be like aging and the girls always have to be in like their mid 20s. I don't know if anyone has anything to say about that necessarily. That's part of the shtick that doesn't hold up anymore. I mean, why cast Denise Richards? Okay, I want to go to bat for Denise Richards in this film. Sure, do it. I think she's fine. I think like it's almost, I think her... Her casting in this film is almost ironic in the sense that she, for most of her career, has been typecast as like a vapid, beautiful, but kind of stupid character. She kind of bimbo-esque. I do think it's um, somewhat of a meta-casting choice to put her in the role as a nuclear physicist. And I think it gives her also a fun opportunity to make fun of it on 30 Rock. I think she's fine in the role. I think she does what she needs to do. She's like a, the exposition girl. Um, that sounds more condescending than I intended. She's the exposition character. Um, and that's fine. I don't think she is nearly as bad as, as her reputation in this film's legacy suggests. Um, she's definitely not the worst Bond woman in the franchise. And she has more to do than a lot of them, actually. Uh, and she asserts that quite a bit. So I think she's fine. I don't think she's perfect by any means, but I think she is totally functional in the film. Mm-hmm. So take that, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm just trying not you, to. You jerk! I'm trying not to uh, push back in a in a. I don't think I like movies that she acts in. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's your own baggage coming in, Dave. Well, that's my mm-hmm. life is baggage. If you're gonna give a female character a little bit of, you know, like like you said, more lines, mm-hmm. more importance to the plot. That you can't, as we saw in later iterations of Bond, they were still an age gap, but at least they had a little bit of uh, of depth, even with the casting. Um, you know, all the female uh, counterparts in the recent Bonds have tried to change that. So maybe this was a, a watershed moment. I don't know. I, they're not doing it that successful. They're losing to Mission Impossible and Fast and the Furious now in terms of cultural relevance. Well, that's what I mean. Like nowadays, <laughs> there's so many different franchises that Bond has to compete against. Like it's trying to, like, I think it has found its niche still, but it definitely took a, t- a bit to react to, yes, Jason Bourne, but yes, Fast and the Furious. Now there's Marvel films. Like it, there's all these other influences that it's kind of trying to compete against. Uh, definitely, I know you, Kyle, have watched many of the James Bond films. Like where where do you, does this fall for you? Is this like, uh, you go top of the list, bottom of the list, middle of the pack. Like, where does this fall There's in so like many your films? 
you're less. You're asking yeah. a pretty well, hard question here. Mm, I know. <laughs> yeah, I have 24. Um, if you're not counting the unofficial Bond films. Right, right. Uh, I would say that this is either, this is like pretty middle. I like it more and more that, uh, each time I watch it. I would say that it's sort of like maybe bottom top 10 or like very high top or, or very middle top 20. I feel like we Somewhere should around like, like ten or eleven. I feel like we should hashtag this episode bottom top ten. That's that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, I I kind of agree with 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 you, Kyle, because I mean, I think this is pretty middle of the road. I don't even think this is the worst Pierce Brosnan James Bond film. So I don't think this mm. is like the absolute worst of the of the Bond films. And uh, I, but I I also am pretty pretty negative about most of the roger moore stuff so so but that's my own baggage coming into it um i think octopussy is almost unwatchable and you've heard it here first (laughs) so uh how how about you dave do you have a feeling like where you would put this or slot this in other james bond films you've seen do i do often wonder where i'd slot in james bond no i am i'm not sure i mean i i i really didn't like watching this movie I sure. didn't connect to it at all. Is it the worst James Bond experience I've ever had? No, you're right. I mean, at least two other Pierce Brosnan movies were probably worse than this one. And there's a whole pantheon of, of other older movies that I haven't rewatched in probably 30 years. So I don't really have a say within the, the 24 movie spectrum. Would I watch this movie again? Absolutely not. Would I concede that this thing has any relevance uh, in the world today? Un- like, uh, just to be disagree i don't think so so uh, i just don't like this movie um i can't do a comparative analysis with the rest of the bond movies i seem to remember watching but uh yeah i i don't uh i don't know if it would be a bottom top 10 for me i uh i think it might be a bottom bottom I would, 10, yeah. would, it, would it be a uh you know a, a top bottom 10 we could maybe <laughs> we could uh, yeah we could go middle bottom and then the top sure. yeah but i mean depends on which night we're talking about so i'd be very i don't mind bottoming <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. We're done here. The machine has asked us to wrap up, but I, I do want to ask this because I love James Bond as a franchise so much. Of course, it's still going on. There was supposed to be a James Bond movie that came out this year and had uh. to be pushed back till 2021. Um, can I just tell you my little fan theory that I know is going to be proven wrong, but I want to be proven right so bad? It's No Time to Die is what the latest James Bond film is going to be called. They're going to kill him. I think James Bond, I think they're going to kill off Daniel Craig in the movie is my, my little pet theory that's going to happen. But I don't know. Where do you think you want to go from here? I'm, I'm not interested in like who you think is going to be James Bond next, but do you think it's going to try and reinvent itself after Craig is gone? Because presumably this is his last film, although he said that last time too. So who knows? I'm curious as, as to whether they'll kill him in the film. I neither confirm nor deny disagree or agree with that with that assertion i do think it, it will need to reinvent itself it it has mm-hmm. to just by nature of cyclical tenures and whether like, returns or not and, and whatnot but also just in terms of the temperature of blockbuster filmmaking because it i think it's becoming more and more cognizant that it is unable to keep up with other franchises not in a bad way necessarily, mm-hmm. but it, there are just there are too many IP They're that, just pumping stuff that out, are just yeah. yeah that are churning things out in like a very industrial complex way, um, and I think it needs to reevaluate what it what they want James Bond to say, and I think his growing obsolescence 
And the fact that they're sort of like asserting that more and more, especially in Spectre, where they basically argue that like James Bond should die. We have no reason to have feels field agents like him anymore. And also mm-hmm. like he's the ghost of British imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and so I kind of wonder if they're going to do a period piece next. I wonder if they're going to go retro. I would not, I would not be opposed That's interesting. to that. That's actually a really interesting idea. Yeah. Go basically say back in the sixties again and <laughs> go from there. That's an interesting thing. Dave, do you have any ideas about this? Like, or wants, I guess, from where the James Bond franchise goes to? No, not particularly. It's interesting listening to you guys, like, this is offensive sounding, fanboy a little bit and separating the Bond Mm -hmm. legacy from industrial movie making. I mean, I think they are one of the founding uh, backbones of this idea of serializing movies uh, and spitting out stars to, uh, you know, keep I will say, though, but it wasn't until, like, the Craig ones where they tried to even attempt continuity like the other ones are mm. not really trying to do that in a way sometimes they do but not really right. certainly mm. yeah they're certainly, very like they're fairly self-contained yeah yeah i mean i think i can't remember no you're right yeah i think the next pierce brosnan movie he's this is the one where he's in a prison camp right to start the yes so yeah, it doesn't yeah. Sense, off, right? yeah. Okay. the one where the villain is a north korean person who has surgery to make himself white oh who right. incidentally was in the first fast and the furious Yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. I don't know. I when I look at stuff like this, or and we were just off air, we we're talking about Star Wars and Star Trek. I think we we're about to see like uh, this unfortunate everything being referenced to COVID, but the movie industry is due for a breaking point. Yeah. I think the idea of making what are these a hundred, hundred and fifty million dollar films will uh, be threatened because uh, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Even if this thing dies out, there will be another. I'm sorry, listeners, there will be another pandemic in the future. Uh, it, we've shown that it's viable. So, you know, do people gamble this amount of money to put on a single star yeah. to blow shit up? Even if it's a period piece like we saw with the, I haven't watched them, but like Kingsman and stuff, I think they're doing the similar thing where they're going back in time, you know, just to mm-hmm. get a third or fourth movie out. I mean, putting on a period piece at, at this level to blow shit up, that's a very elaborate process right if we want bond to continue i think i agree with you kyle i think they have to go that way i think we we can't continue making a present bond anymore and we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about grounding things in reality reality now is so fucked up that uh, yeah. you can't ground it on anything because i mean it, there's no ground <laughs> jesus right. like right. if you actually mm-hmm. watch the news cycle uh you'd go schizophrenic it's it's uh, yeah. it's a weird place we're existing in now so to write a spy novel Set in the, right. in yeah, the 2020s, do do? Uh, it's a joke. So you basically want the next Bond film to be a Zoom call and him it just will be, to figure but, it out. Uh, I, I wouldn't be sad if Daniel, I mean, I would be sad if Daniel Craig uh, as Bond dies because, you know, it'd be emotional, but I wouldn't be sad if they did that and they just walked away. The Broccoli's can't because they're rich and oh, no. they won't let yeah. that They'll money go away. Them out. But uh, I guess what I'm, what I'm, I think what my subtle idea behind that is, there was this long time fan theory, which was proven wrong multiple times. Let me tell you that. But I mean, a long term fan theory that like uh, James Bond was actually just a moniker and it was never actually his real name. And so every James Bond actor you saw it's was him just taking up the mantle because the previous one had died or whatever. I actually kind of think that they should maybe lean into that. Maybe of him. He does definitively die. Next mantle takes up and then goes from there. But. I don't know. You know, there's, you know what can of worms that brings up? You know, like they're talking a couple of years about Idris and, and stuff is right. uh, apologetic filmmaking and how that doesn't catch on. Like as much as mm-hmm. liberal people would 
love to see mm-hmm. the idea of a black bond that should just be a new f- franchise like if you're gonna do yes i totally agree right totally yeah agree. like a female I, yeah like a, a awesome woman of color who's kicking everyone's ass that should be its mm-hmm. own project i mean charlie staring okay. is making a career of being right. like an ass-kicking woman mm-hmm. in a her lot films, of women right? are so, right yeah. yeah i i think the the idea of a like non-white or non-male james bond is very much a new liberal fantasy that like if you put marginalized bodies in these institutions that are capable and responsible for genocide that it automatically makes it all better i think if anything the franchise ever wants to really confront that on a really uh tactile or or material level changing the casting is not the way to do it having just watched three kings just quickly on kyle's theory wait, 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 no 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 we haven't watched it yet having though, technically. thinking about watching <laughs> three kings yep. uh, it would be interesting if there's a moment in three kings where they are trying to contextualize both sides of the enemy hero thing and that's mm-hmm. the story in uh diet what is it die tomorrow whatever the next day no what? time to die no time to die no time to if die, that's yeah. how they mm-hmm. can frame the death of bond where you actually mm-hmm. empathize with the person who kills him mm-hmm. that, would that would be, be writing really right yeah. but that's not gonna happen. yeah that would be but yeah that that's that takes a that takes that. A, yeah you, you have to walk a very fine line to hit, get hit that right kyle the machine makes us rate every movie we watch <laughs> i feel so bad when we have guests on because um your rating doesn't matter, but I'm going to ask it to you anyways. Out of five, what would you rate this movie? Three and a half, four. Is there three and a half, four? Or two and a half? Three yeah. and a half to a four? Three and a half. Okay. Dave, what would you rate this movie? Uh, yeah, I'm going to... My brain is just going one, one, one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm going to go with my heart then and just say, you know, point... F- no, I think, uh, I think I'll stay with a one. I, yeah, I, a one. I, didn't, I didn't like this movie at all. Like I said, I'm right there in the center. Um, I'm curious if I do rewatch this. I will probably eventually watch this movie, to be perfectly frank, because I rewatch movies all the time. I'm giving it a two and a half, literally like right in the in the middle of the pack here for me, which means that that averages to 1.75. It's another pretty big, I mean, it's not as egregious as South Park, but, you know, another movie we didn't see at did eye. And if we do uh, any supplemental feature about convincing each other we're wrong we'll get kyle to come back and uh with 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 a you know stronger stick and just beat our heads over until uh, (laughs) i concede another half point or something but uh, i'll like pour uh, caviar down your throat that scene was oh fuck it's so interesting doing this show with you dave because we average our scores together and then i look at our list i'm like man i would reorder this list (laughs) it was my list um anyway so entering our list at number 28 is the world is not enough. Seems a bit low, so, but that's okay. Because It does seem a little quickly, bit low, but that's your fault. Yeah, <laughs> Kyle, we've watched a lot of garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Before we find out what we're going to be watching next week, uh, Kyle, if people wanted to stay in contact with you uh, and find out what you're writing online, how can they do that? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter at Tyle Kerner, with T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. It's just a spoonerism of my name because I'm an extremely creative person. Um, and you can find some of my writing across the internet at Paste Magazine, New York Times, and Slate, and GQ, and on my website, tilekerner.com. Thank you so much again for doing this. This was really great. Thank um, you so much for having me. Yeah, this was, uh, I knew we were going to have a great conversation, so this turned out really well for me. Uh, let's find out what we're watching next week. I'm going to push this button. Oh, I mean, Dave, you must have had this just on the mind randomly. Next week, we're going to be watching Three Kings. Whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm, uh, 
I'm a savant. I'm a psychic. Yeah. And I'm not an idiot. <laughs> Weirdo. Um, all right. So I guess, uh, Dave, can you, can you just take my new profile photo? How, how, how should I stand? How about, how if I pretend to be just a nuclear physicist? Just tell me how to pose myself. Well, you're wearing too many clothes, first of all, because everybody oh. knows for the radiation, um, you, sh right. you should be naked. Yeah. Uh, secondly, yeah, we're gonna have to work on the chest here. It's a problem. Should I not have shaved it into Pierce Brosnan's face? Is that, is that weird or? I think it's genius, frankly. It looks great. <laughs>